Well, good evening, everyone. And um, for those who don't know me, I'm Tim Hitchens. I'm the president of the college. Um, and welcome to our annual Haldane Lecture, which commemorates the two remarkable Haldanes, father and son, who conducted groundbreaking experiments here in North Oxford, where Wolfson College now stands. Their house and lab are now, of course, gone, but the spirit of the place lingers. The combination of scientific enterprise uh, with a landscape of river, water meadows, and a greenness which is the ideal setting for calm study, one hopes. Uh, I myself, I'm an English literature graduate, and so this setting takes me back to the 17th century poem by Andrew Marvell, which many of you will know, The Garden, in which the poet sits in his garden, withdrawing into his happiness, annihilating all that's made to a green thought in a green shade. So it's more than fitting that our speaker tonight is one of the world's leading experts in biodiversity. Cathy Willis is the principal of St Edmund's Hall here at Oxford. She is Professor of Biodiversity in the Department of Zoology and was Founding Director and now Associate Director of the Biodiversity Institute in Oxford. She was Director of Science at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew from 2013 to 2018. Now, Kew is not just a garden. It also supports 370 scientists, world-renowned scientific collections amounting to about 8.5 million specimens, um, including a herbarium, a fungarium, and the Millennium Seed Banks, and research projects in over 101 countries with over 450 international partnerships. So it is one of the world's greatest, one of the world's greatest gardens and one of the UK's greatest assets. So Cathy's role there for five years was to oversee the coordination of those scientists, collections and associated research activities and partnerships. She led the development of Kew's first ever science strategy and launched a number of scientific outputs such as the annual State of the World's Plants Reports and a large research initiative to sequence the genus level of all known vascular plants and fungi, the plant and fungal trees of life. Those of you listening to the Radio 4 programme, The Life Scientific, in 2015, will have heard her being gently grilled by the interviewer Jim Al-Khalili. But tonight, Cathy will ask the question, if biodiversity is the medicine, then what are its active ingredients? Cathy. So thank you, and thank you for a very warm welcome there. So I want to start, well, I want to start with this picture. So in 2010, when I became the Professor of Biodiversity in Oxford, the same week as I was um, elected to that position, there was a, uh, the UK population were asked, what is biodiversity? And 80% said it was a washing powder. At which point I knew well and truly I had my work cut out because, of course, biodiversity is much more than that. It's not a washing powder at all, in fact. It is the biological diversity of life on Earth. So it's the species, the genes, the communities, the populations, 
all of those that make that rich tapestry of, of life on earth. Oh, sorry, this is very fast. But we often think of biodiversity, and when we think about biodiversity, we tend to think of it out there in the countryside and something we need to put a fence around to conserve it. And biodiversity in the cities we often think of as street furniture. And certainly if you talk to city planners, they'll say, well, that's a pretty tree or that's a nice patch of grass. Very rarely do they think of that biodiversity as providing anything other than something nice to look at. But one of the issues that's been argued for a number of years now is that because we view biodiversity as a sort of nice to look at, put a protected area around it, we're doing a very, very bad job at conserving it. And I don't know how many of you saw the IP Bears report that was uh, released late last year where over 1,000 species have gone extinct in the last 30, 30 to 50 years. As a result of that, it's actually the economists that have been leading on this to start to say the only way you're really going to be able to conserve biodiversity going forwards is to properly appreciate the role that biodiversity plays, the societal benefits that it, 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 it provides all of us and effectively it's saying that we need to make nature's values visible. Now, some people get very upset by that you, you can't put a price on nature. But I, have, I personally have moved very quickly into this area because I do think that unless we really put nature on the balance sheet, then it's always the thing that comes last when we're thinking about development. And so there are two really important documents that started this whole process. The first was the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment in 2005. And that assessment started to look at what are the flows, what are the services that we get from nature? What sort of things does nature provide us that we actually can't do without? And what do we need to conserve in order to maintain that nature and its flows? And then there was the TEAB report, which is saying, actually, how much... If we took those things away and had to replace it with te technology, how much money would it cost for us to do that? So what do we mean by this? So it's, quite, it's an interesting one because often when I talk to the students about this, I often show them this slide because I ask them, okay, where on this slide, where on this landscape is the most valuable part? If you're going to put a fence around an area to conserve, where are you going to put your fence? So the really eager ones put their hands up straight away, as always, and many of them will say, well, it's, it's this area here, it's the, it's the woodland. And I don't know how many of you would have said the woodland, that would have been the area. Um, and, but then, of course, if you look at that woodland, it's monodominant. It's all one sort of type of vegetation or one sort of tree. The, the ones who've thought about it a bit more say, well, it's that area there because you've got a mosaic landscape and there's many more varieties of habitats and species on there. Nobody thinks this single tree is any use. Nobody thinks that's of any use. It's got nothing on it. And nobody thinks this grassland is any use at the bottom. But if you're thinking about the flows that you get from that landscape and the ecosystem services provided, you have a very different outlook. So at the bottom here, this is the area, which is, it doesn't look very flat, but this is the area that's really important for food. That's your provisioning area. Now, that single tree is actually very important because if the crop you're growing down here requires pollination, then this is exactly the sort of habitat for pollinators. It's the foraging habitat and the nesting habitat. Most pollinators can't fly more than about one and a half kilometres. Therefore, if you get pollinating plants that are two kilometres away, they're useless. They don't provide the flows that you need. But carrying on up this landscape, this here, this large area of monodominant forest, is actually very important for carbon sequestration 
for drawing down atmospheric carbon dioxide and storing it in the land. And then finally, right at the top, that's the sort of cultural landscape where you will get the iconic species and many of the rare birds and animals, birds and plants, that people want to come and walk up there and also very important for uh, spiritual and recreation. So the nature of the services provide this whole framing has been moving very rapidly. I sit on the government's Natural Capital Committee, which is very much about how do we, how do we identify those parts of nature that are really important to provide these ecosystem services, services that are really important to the UK population. And the way we look at it, first of all, you've got your stocks, which are things like your species, your communities, your landscapes. And then as a result of these, are the extent and the quality and the spatial configuration, they provide us with the flows. So those flows will be things like uh, pollination, biomass, uh, carbon drawdown, uh, erosion protection, uh, water purification. And those flows, if you then come through here, you get very clear societal benefits that result from these. And so a, a classic example, if we were to plant trees in the evenload catchment, for example, um, then we would probably not be having to uh, dig this very large drainage uh, canal across Oxford because those trees would reduce the overland flow and actually result in or reduce the flood risk that many of us have encountered over the last 20 years. Now, in here, one of them, and one that's rapidly moving up the political agenda, is human health. So what parts of nature underpin the aspects that we need in order to get physical and mental well-being benefits from nature. <clears throat> now, when you talk to people about this, they immediately say, well, green space, we have to have more green space. And any, any planner will say, we have to put green space in a city, as if green space is the answer, and therefore that's fine. Once we've got sp green space, everyone's going to be physically and mentally better off. Um, you can note from my voice there's a slight uh, cynicism or the tiredness of, of this sort of green space mantra. The question is, it's not any green space. What specific aspects of green space provide maximum health benefits? And what is the mechanism, what's the mechanism between nature and physical and mental well-being? And that's where this, this whole research area is, is going right now. And it's not a research area being led by biologists it's being med led by the medical sciences. And the people that I interact with right now on this are based in psychiatry and based in, um, up the road in the Warnford because they are the people really started to look at this to say, can we create cityscapes and landscapes that are more effective than giving people drugs for particular conditions? And so that's, the, that's what I'd like to now present for the next 40 minutes or so just to show you where the evidence has got to and where there are quite clear knowledge gaps that people in Oxford are now starting to look into fill. So let's first, first of all go through the well-known or pretty well-known facts. When you talk to people about nature in cities, the first thing, some city trees are really effective at particulate matter removal. They are a very natural, uh, nature-based intervention for cleaning air. And the reason they do that, there's two things. First of all, the leaf surface and the hairs on the leaf surface act as a biofilter. They capture those particulate matter in the actual leaves themselves. So much so that if you sweep up the leaves from places, the plain leaves from London, you can't put them 
on a, as a fertilizer on your, on your beds because they poison your plants. They're so good. Your leaves are absolutely stuffed full of the particulate matter. And actually, I'm my next-door neighbour, in we live in Summertown, my next-door neighbour has a horrible sort of diesel car, which he revs up. And I was cleaning off the ivy of her wall the other day, which is black. And I realised, actually, the ivy's doing a very good job at actually removing the particulate matter removal. Anyway, that's an aside. But I think the other thing that people don't, don't realise is, in fact, that the leaves themselves also, they act like sponges, and they can take up sulfur dioxide and the like into this lower part of the leaf. And again, so they are incredibly, some species do a really, really good job at particulate matter removal. However, as always, if we're not careful, we think we'll just plant trees in a city, but without thinking about which trees do this the best. And I just want to give you an example. This is a lovely study where this, is, this lovely, beautiful English Indian bean tree, this is in... Um, in Hungary, I think, in Poland, they, looked, they took the leaves and effectively washed the leaves and, and, and broke them down to see how much particulate matter they'd captured over these three years. So you've got this big Indian bean tree, and then you've got this rather, rather sort of miserable-looking dwarf Korean lilac, very pretty, but not very large. But when they actually measured the amount of particulate matter that those two contrasting vegetation types are c- captured... This one, 7.5 milligrams centimetre squared a year of particulate matter, so a large, large tree. This one, 32 milligrams. Completely different. The reason for that is this large, beautiful Indian bean tree has got lovely, shiny, waxy leaves, and your material land on it and it will be washed off. This thing's got short, hairy leaves that actually will pick up and hold on to the material. So it comes back to really understanding what the species can do in order to know what to plant where. That's just one example. Another well-known fact is actually the the effect of vegetation as reducing heat stress. And again, something that's really important, especially as we're going forward with quite a lot of aspects of climate change. So these are four American cities. We've got Boston, Washington, Atlanta, and Philadelphia. And what they did, this is a 24-hour period in the summer, and they just measured heat at the pavement level. Heat at the pavement level where you had no trees, which is the red here, and heat at the pavement level where you've got trees or, or savanna grasses. And, I mean, we all know this, that trees are important for shade in cities. Another one, another well-known fact, and this is an interesting one, is that if you've got more space, then um, apparently, and I say apparently, uh, that can have an impact on obesity levels in the city. The, uh, the, the thought being that with more space, people do more exercise, and therefore um, the, you get the, 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 the weight levels down. I say apparently because there's an equal number of studies, I haven't put it in here, that show there is no relationship between green space and obesity levels. And I think it's, it's a very nice thing to have, you know, more green space, that's it, everyone will exercise. But I think there's a lot more that we need to be looking at there. But also with these studies, of course, all they're able to do is just tell you there's a relationship or an association. They're not showing you what the causality is, what's the mechanism. Right, this is where it starts to get quite interesting, though. With the huge um, increase in big data in the last 10 or so years, and also particularly the satellite imagery data where you can get your satellite images down to every 10 metres in a city, you can start to geolocate individual trees and really understand the differences in the amount of vegetation in particular parts of the city. And against that, 
what we've also got now are biobanks. Now, biobanks are, they are, can be countrywide or citywide medical records, normally spanning up to five, ten years. So you can really start to understand human health and how many drugs people take for particular conditions and compare it against numbers of trees in a city, for example. So this is a lovely study. This was done, um, this was 31,000 people. Their medical records are 31,000 people. And in there, they had data on their general health and also their cardiometabolic condition. And what this showed, people who live, so each of these, this is just a, these are individual trees. And so each person is geolocated. So what they did was they looked at the, the location where the person lived and how many trees they had around their house. And what they found, those that lived in neighbourhoods with a higher density of trees had higher self-rated health perceptions. They felt better about their health. But also, they had significantly less cardiovascular conditions. Now, another one, less well-known fact, is that tree health in cities also seems to be associated with human health. So when your trees get ill, your people get ill. And this is a lovely study, huge sample size. So this was between 1990 and 2007. This thing here is an emerald ash borer. And what it does is it lays its eggs in the bark of the ash, and then they bore in to the center of the tree. And within two to three years, as you get more and more cycles of this ash borer in your tree, within two to three years, your tree dies because it loses the ability for solutes and water to move up and down this stem. So in the States, 100 million ash trees were killed between this time. And you can see you you have a wave of infestation. So you start over here in 2002, 2007, 2010. So gradually it's moving from east to west across the United States. So this study aimed to look at as the trees die, do, do you get a change in people's health in here? So this is what a street looks like. This is in uh, Toledo in Ohio. So this is 2006. Here's your ash trees. This is after the emerald ash borer has been there for three years. Completely wipes out your tree, your trees in the city. What they found, as you see the movement over those years, as it moves across, you get a much and a significant increase in mortality related to cardiovascular illness. So that you can, you can almost map it across that as your trees die, you get more and more people actually dying of cardiovascular illness. So much so that this study concluded that an additional 6,100 deaths were related to these illnesses and around uh, yeah, this number 15,000 cardiovascular deaths were linked through to this, this what was happening. And I think the the beauty of this study, sad though it is, is the fact that you've also got this time-transgressive behaviour going along across from the west to the east. Now, there's one more less well-known fact that I think is worth... And this is work that's been done in Oxford. And one of the authors on here, John Gallagher, is up uh, up the hill in in Headington, and he's in the psychiatry department. And what they've done here is they've used the UK biobank data... So the UK Biobank is probably one of the best biobanks we have in the world. And it's got around, it's got, uh, well, about 95,000 individual health records. And they looked at 26 cities. 
And what they did was they looked at the photosynthetic activity that you get from the colour of green that you see from satellite imagery. And the colour of green, the greener it is, the more healthy, the higher the photosynthetic activity from that area. So this is the UK. Let me give you, I think, um, I'll, I'll show you Oxford in one minute. What they found, when you geolocate those people, these people who live in greener areas have a better mental health outcome. And even more interesting than that, it wasn't the amount of green space, but the colour, the hue of green. So for each incremental increase in greenness, you've got an incremental increase in mental well-being, i.e. people are taking less drugs for depression. Um, now, they are, these, these results are more pronounced for women and people who are less than six years in age and also people of a lower socioeconomic status. But taking into account all three of those facts, you still have, um, you still have this, this very, very strong relationship in there. So strong. I mean, this paper was published in The Lancet. This is not in some sort of journal that's sort of irrelevant or very small and a very low impact factor. And there are a number of these coming through right now. Uh, but also, interestingly, similar studies have been done in other cities in the US, in Catalonia, in France, and in South Africa, finding the same very strong relationship or association between the amount of green and mental well-being. So I just did a quick... I, I thought I'd do one for Oxford so you can quickly check where you are. I think, I think, uh, you, I think the college is over here somewhere, yes. <laughs> so in quite close to a darker green area. But you can see, these, so it's, this is what I mean by the incremental increase in greenness, going from no green, and then each time you have an incremental increase in green, you get an incremental increase in mental well-being outcomes. So the, there are two really important questions arising because all you're getting there is an association. You're showing that you've got mental well-being, imp well, improvement in mental well-being or in physical well-being associated with more vegetation. But what are the, what's the mechanisms, what's the physiological mechanisms and the psychological mechanisms that lead, that, have the, are, that, that, that you have that relationship going on? And also which aspects of green nature are we talking about? And this, I'll just give you, there are a number of hypotheses in here that I want to um, throw out, and we'll look at these for the rest of the talk. So the first one is that it's just the overall diversity of vegetation. It's the amount of biomass. The more biomass you get, there's some physiological and psychological mechanisms with more green, more biomass, you're better off. The second one is actually not so much the amount of biomass, but the, it's the amount of chlorophyll in those plants. It's actually the colour that really matters itself. So that if you have a green plant or a green and white plant, that's more important than having huge amounts of vegetation. The third one, which we'll come on to, is the shape. So that, and I'll, I'll show it later, but is it the shape of vegetation itself and the way you react to shape? So here we have tall uh, cypress trees here. Do we, when we look at those, do we have a different reaction and a different physiological response to when we look at broadly spreading trees. And I'll show you some interesting information. And the last one in here is it's actually the smell itself. It's the smell of plants, and it's the organic volatile compounds that we get when we... If you think about walking across a lawn that's freshly mown and think about that smell, is it the smell itself that's the thing that is triggering these better uh, physiological and psychological outcomes? And so this is very much a newly emerging research field 
but one that is rapidly moving up the, uh, the uh, political agenda. And Oxford Arboretum is working on this, psychiatry is working on it, people in um, the JR is working on it, because it really is something that if we want to improve our cities of the future and our environments, there are small things and large things we need to be doing. So I want to take this then forward, and I'm going to take these four hypotheses and show you the, where the evidence base is so, for, so far. So let's start with diversity of vegetation in the amount of biomass. And a lot of this links back to this forest bathing, the whole um, Japanese concept where if you sit in a forest for a couple of hours, this will actually lead to a much better physical and mental well-being outcome. There's some evidence to support this. But, of course, not many of us have the advantage of the Japanese, the beautiful Japanese forests. So if you're looking out a window, for example, and you look onto green rather than looking onto other, other um, office blocks, does that actually have a, a mechanism? Does it lead us to be better off? So that's exactly the first experiment I want to start off with, to say that well, um, this study, study here, they had took 17 uh, female university students and they showed them pictures of um, the, the picture of the... Here, oh, sorry, this is terrible to say. So effectively what they had here, they got them to look first of all at a picture of a forest, and then they had a grey slide, and then they looked at a picture of an of a, uh, urban environment. Um, now, that, the, the black there is just to obviously to anonymise the person rather than not allowing them to see anything. But they measured three things. They measured the heart rate variability... They measured the brain activity, particularly the oxyhemoglobin. You can pick that up because oxyhemoglobin is, is um, it, it's magnetic. You can actually pick that up. when you. So you've got blood, the, the concentrations of blood flow to the brain. And also they asked them how they felt, sort of psychological measurements. Um, and what were the results? Well, the results, even from this very simple experiment, were very interesting. So when you've got the... Um, the, the little asterisks here, this is because they're statistically significant, these results. So at the top here is when you look at the city image, and the bottom here is when you look at the forest image, and this is your oxyhemoglobin concentrations in here. And within 90 seconds, you get a significant difference in the way that the blood flow goes to the brain when you look at a forest image out a window versus a city image. And in particular... This, the area of the brain that occurs in, it's a reduction in the oxyhemoglobin, is, an, is known to be, it creates a calming, it's, it's a calming effect on the body. The second one here, if you look at the, um, this here, the, when you look at the subjective feelings, you'll see that when they looked at the forest image, they felt very comfortable and they felt, that, um, they felt very relaxed. Whereas with the city image, they felt indifferent. So... That's looking out a window, but what about walking? Should we be walking around the grounds of Wolfson? And if so, how often, when, and what sort of environment should we be looking at? So this was a, a very nice study where they had um, 23 uh, Japanese men, and effectively they did two circuits. They walked, they did a 15 minutes walk around the city area, then a 15 minutes around the urban park. Um, and they measured the heart rate and the uh, heart rate variability, and also, again, these psychological impacts. So what did they find? Well, first of all, with the heart rate activity, the, there's, there's two sorts you measure. The parasympathetic, uh, which is enhanced in relaxing situations. The black in here is when they walk in the urban plot, and the, the white in here is city park. So you can see 
that their, their heart rate activity is linked to physiological relaxation. And down here, your sympathetic heart rate activity, you'll see it's the other way around, which is what you expect, because the sympathetic heart rate activity is enhanced in stressful situations. And finally, if you look at the overall um, beats per minute, they're much lower when they're walking in the urban park than when they're walking around the city. So if you're going for your lunchtime walk, it's really worth going and walking around the park than just walking around the streets. There is a clear psychological um, advantage, an increased psychologically relaxed state in here. But there is a question in there, how long do you have to walk for? Is there a dose-response relationship? Or is, it 50, is 15 minutes enough? Or if you, if you read the forest bathing, uh, the Japanese forest bathing, it's two hours. Now, many of us don't have two hours, but I think it's a very interesting question here. And this is a lovely, a lovely example where they took um, uh, University of Michigan, uh, 36 participants who were in faculty and staff, and they gave them eight weeks, and they said for three times a week to take a nature experience. So they could either walk or sit in nature three times a week. And the thing they measured, they measured two things. They measured... The, um, in the saliva, the cortisol, which is a hormone directly a very good indication of your levels of stress, and also salivary amylase, which is a digestive enzyme. And again, that could be raised when you're stressed. Now, the reason they measure both is because they're, they're these, these, both of these um, compounds actually have a diurnal phase. So when you wake up in the morning, you have high cortisol, and during the day it goes down, and salivary amylase is the other way around. So by measuring both you can take away the diurnal, um, or you can see what's happening in addition to those diurnal changes occurring. So this was a very interesting one. So, here, so some people ran, some people walked, and these are the ones I like, some people sat. Okay. So what, was, what did they find? So these are these, 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 these biomarkers in here, and the, the, the fact they're really good me methods for measuring. So... This is the table, so I'm just, I highlight the bits in there. So this is the interval. So people are allowed to choose their own interval. So some people just did 7 to 14 minutes. Some people did 15 to 20 minutes. The really keen ones did 21 to 30. And the very keen people did more than 30 minutes three times a week. Now, this is the interesting thing. If you look at the cortisol levels here, those people that 7 to 14 minutes, 8.3%. Um, this is a cortisol drop. So you're, that hormone is dropping, so you are becoming more relaxed. When you get to 15 to 20 minutes, it's only 3.7. So actually, you, you'd be better off doing a really short time. But the best time is 21 to 30 minutes when you have a drop of 18.5. But you then reach your peak beyond 20 minutes. You don't get any further advantage from walking. So I think this is quite good, a quite good take-home message. That if you've got short time, 20 minutes is ample. However, I think this is an even better message, actually, for me. Um, so if you looked at the people who sitting and sitting in a bit of walking, let's look at the amylase change. So the cortisol doesn't show any difference at all. Amylase, if you sit, you get a 28% drop in your amylase. 28%, percentage 28, going, going down. If you walk you only get 4%. So the take-home message from this one is that sitting is actually better 
if you want to reduce those stress levels than walking. And it's to do with, the, 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 obviously, there's, there's obviously physiological, other physiological things going on when you're exercising. And I'm not suggesting for one moment that one shouldn't do the walking because, of course, it's very good for the heart. But I do think there's some interesting things in here. You don't have to go and pound the pavements to get the benefits of, of green nature in terms of reducing those very clear stress um, markers. So we can see that the evidence is coming through, and these are just I've just picked a couple. There are literally hundreds of experiments coming through right now showing these sorts of relationships. But the next question is, is it the shape, is it the colour, or is it the smell that's creating and allowing us or showing and linking through to this stress relief? So let's start first then with the shape. So when you look at a tree, how many of you look at a tree and think, oh, that's Carpinus betulus or, oh, that's hornbeam? Not many, I imagine, by everyone snorting. But, <laughs> but what you do look at when you look at a tree is you look at its form. Effectively, what we're looking at is its silhouette, its shape. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting question. Do we have a preference for different shapes of trees? So this is a study, and these studies first of all started ages ago, 1999, but the most recent one that I've been looking at was published in 2016. People are still asking this question, and the same results are coming out time and time again. I'm not sure why we keep doing it, but anyway. So effectively, these are the different silhouette shapes that you can have a tree. The spreading, the spreading with a short trunk and a large, spread, uh, large canopy. That's an acacia tree on a savanna background. You've got these tall... Col- what well, they call them column trees. These ones are something like the cypress tree. You've got the global-shaped tree. You've got a global canopy there. That's something like the hornbeam. Here you have the fan. And so these, in the, these fan-shaped trees, this is a palm tree. You've got your broad oval tree here. Uh, I don't know what that one is, a, a cherry, I think. And then you've got your narrow conical trees, like your pine. So... This one here, this first study, they 270, 80 students at the University of California, they showed, they showed the computer-drawn images of these trees because they wanted to just look at the silhouettes rather than showing colour and all these other things. And they were asked to select their preference for height, width of trees, and density of canopy. And what they showed, really, really strong. Everyone liked the acacia tree. Everyone, that was their favourite tree. And I don't know if you've been eyeballing those thinking, which is your favourite tree, but... I think, if you think about oak trees, oak is also like this. These very broad, spreading canopy, short trunk. The things that people absolutely hated, and none of the students liked them, were the narrow conical trees. So that those, and every experiment that's done, and, and then the other, the most recent ones, they've also looked, they've, they've replicated these results with many, many different groups including, interestingly, there's a very nice study which was done on people from Nigeria. And these were the three groups, Nigerian um, uh, school children, and then teenagers, and then adults, who've all lived in the tropical rainforest, the African, uh, West African rainforest, their entire lives. 87% of them liked this landscape and this tree. Not the dense tropical rainforest and the canopies that are surrounding them. So there's more than just some cultural background of the environment you're living in. Right. But 
Well, it's one thing to have preference, but does the preference then lead on to a physical or physiological or a psychological mental, uh, psychological uh, outcome? And that's where I think some of the most recent work's going on is, is really interesting because it's, it's taking, as I showed you just the silhouettes, it's actually when you look at the silhouette, what the, a lot of the evidence coming through is it's actually not so much the oval shape, it's the fractal dimension of that tree, of that vegetation, of that landscape, which is the thing that we're actually, we're actually looking at when we look at a landscape. So a fractal dimension, I'm sure all of you know this, but a, um, a fractal object is effectively, it's, it's how many times can it be magnified. Um, their complexity is, is the number of magnifications you have within, a, 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 um, within the object. There's many fractal dimensions in nature. I'll give you an example. Coastlines are fantastic. So when you look at a map, you'll see a coastline, you'll see bays, and you'll see inlets. Let's say that's at one kilometre. If you go down to 500, uh, yeah, go 500 metres, in that bay, you'll see more headlands and more bays. If you go down to 100 metres, you'll see the same. It goes on and on and on, right the way down to centimetre scale. You'll still see headlands and bays. That is a fractal dimension. Now, mathematically, they can go on to infinity, and that, therefore, has a d-value um, of 2. But fractals are found in many aspects of nature, and particularly um, in vegetation. So if you think you've got your branches here, but within those branches are sub-branches, and within the sub-branches there are twigs, and within twigs there are smaller twigs. And, in fact, when you look at uh, many aspects of nature, woody plants and trees have a fractal dimension on the whole between 1.2 and uh, 1.9. So that you, you can have this, these fractal patterns going on in nature and in art. Now, how does that link through to uh, well-being? A number of experiments have started to look at whether or not we have an affinity to particular fractal dimensions. And so, first of all, this study, this first study here, it looked at, it had uh, 20 participants, and they, these are computer-generated fractal images on here at the top, and you'll see in all of them, there's one where everyone actually picked the one they most liked, and that one was a fractal dimension of between 1.3 and 1.5. The second experiment then, a lot more participants, 200, and they showed them 80 scenes of nature. And some of the scenes had the acacia tree and open grasslands, and some of them were dense forests. And what they did, they once they got people to select which one they liked the most, they then took the silhouette of the, the skyline, so here's your acacia tree on a savannah, you draw around that, and then you work out what the fractal dimension is in the silhouette of the landscape. And what they found from this is that the skyline, once you've done this, the one that had the skyline with the, the fractal dimension of 1.3 happened to be the vast majority of landscape pictures that people chose. So there seems to be this link with 1.3. So we're going to try it now. <laughs> So there are four fractal pictures here. And so if you could just look at them, so you've got A and then B. So these are the silhouette landscapes. There's C and there's D. Now they've got these four values in here. I won't tell you what they are right now. But if you like A most, put your hand up. 
If you like B the most, put your hand up. If you like C the most, put your hand up. And if you like D the most, put your hand up. So the most of you, most of you went to B in the room. This is very unscientific, but (laughs) roughly, large number of hands. That's 1.14, This one here is 1.51, and then 1.70. So even in this room, most of you go for the fractal dimension of 1.3. But does that actually lead to physical or mental well-being? So this is a, most of you might know, this is, a, this is an EEG. It's an electro, I can't even say it, an EEG scan. And effectively, you put a cap, like a swimming cap, on there. It has electrodes attached to the, the brain, and it measures the electrical activity of the brain. And the brain has various waves, electrical waves at frequencies that you can see current coming through. Um, when you have neuron um, reactions going on, it's the synapses. And when they looked at this and they, they showed people those four fractal dimensions on those pictures you've just all looked at, what they found is 1.32, there were three different changes occurring in the electrical activity in the brain. First of all, you've got a heightened alpha frequency. And the alpha frequency, the component of the alpha frequency in your electrical activity in the brain is, is, is associated with a more relaxed state and increased wakefulness. They had a reduced delta frequency, and the delta frequency is prominent during drowsiness and sleep. If you close your eyes and think of calm thoughts, you'll get an increase in the delta frequency if if you're wearing uh, the electrical activity. So basically, this this is more prominent. You've got the reduced frequency of that, so you're not so sleepy. And then the beta frequency... This is associated with external focus, attention, and an alert state. So you're more alert, happier, and not so sleepy when you look at 1.32. Really interesting. A lot more work needs to be done on this, but this is very much uh, where the the research has got to. But it's clearly not only the shape that we're looking at when we're walking in the park. And I think this is a good example. So the same Japanese men were made to walk again, but this time in the winter. Um, And so... Uh, they, they did this walk around the city and around the park. And what they found in the winter, when you had no leaves, that actually you didn't get many of the benefits that you had before. You didn't pick up the reduction in the, um, the uh, uh, sympathetic nerve activity. So it can't just be shape. There's something else going on. And because, obviously, you've got no leaves or different color leaves, then it maybe it's something to do with color. So, is it the amount of chlorophyll in the plants, or is it other colour compounds in plants that lead us to have a better response? So, again, this has come back. This looks terrible, but it's not. This, is again, is measuring the neural activity in the brain here. Now, this is a beautiful study because they used ivy leaves. Now, uh, heterohelix, the ivy, is, is one of these very promiscuous plants, and it basically you get all these sort of hybrids that come on. So, that effectively, although it's the same species you've got all these different colour leaves. So the beauty is you've got the same shape, but you've got, obviously, white and green, uh, yellow and green, green, red and yellow, and yellow. And so, therefore, they showed these different leaves to, these, to the participants, and they measured the brain activity. And what they found is that, first of all, you've got a significant... These are the parts of the brain where this comes up. Green and white and green and yellow, 
you get the significant decrease in the oxyhemoglobin content, and therefore it's, it's a calming activity when you see those colours. Uh, if you look at this, uh, the eye fixation rate, again, the more your eye fixes on something, this can lead to a, 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 a more alert state in here. Again, yellow, green, and bright green plants. Now, this is a very interesting one. When you look at subjective feelings, the very strong dislike in here is red. And think how many people put poncetia on their Christmas table. Red is not a good colour to have with plants in your room. Um, and there are many studies showing that now. Um, maybe it's why so many rows at Christmas time. I don't know. So that's the colour of leaves. But what about, what about roses? What about if, if you have a vase of flowers in your room, does that work? Does that actually have any impact on you in terms of your mental and physical well-being? So here we have a, another man who obviously made anonymous by his blindfold. But they, effectively, they measured... Um, what do they measure? They, they measured um, his heart rate variability. This is the monitor going on here. And first of all, he looks at the roses, and then he looks at nothing. And what they found with these people, very strong, significant result, that if you had the roses, then you had a 21% increase in your uh, parasympathetic nervous activity, which is enhanced when you're more relaxed. So having roses on the desk had small thing, but a very simple stimulus directly links back through to a mechanism that makes you more relaxed. Um, but what about other colours of plants? So obviously we've got the greens and the whites, the white, yellows, the purples. So here, the same... Uh, they're, yeah, they're not the same species, but they're very similar in size, very similar in, in style. And again, the same sort of thing, got people to look at five different colours of flowers. So what was the result in there? Well, first of all, all plants actually correlated with some changes. So plants are just good to have around. But the green plants were the ones that had the most impact on mood and on uh, activity going on in the brain. Um, which is a bit boring, I think, because I'd much rather have a nice colourful flower, but clearly it's this green and green and white. But, in fact, the yellow flowers had the most positive effect on, on um, these parts of the brain that meant that actually people are happier. You get a, the, the reactions in the brain lead, are, are associated with increased happiness with yellow flowers. So green or yellow flowers are the ones that you want to have in your offices. And so, Teddy Hall, we're working on it. <laughs> but can you do with... You know, you can get this horrible... Um, well, no, not horrible, but they're like a sort of a, a, a polyester flower. So they look like a flower, but actually they are, they're made out of a cloth material. But they're very, very effective. Actually, someone, our domestic person, has some in her office. I went in yesterday and said, wow, those are nice flowers. And she said, oh, they're, they're, they're not real. And that's how effective they are. You look at them and think, okay, I've got to get that. Anyway, this is a very nice, and this is sort of a warning tale for us all. So these groups, group of students, they didn't tell them. So first of all, they got them to look at pansies, yellow flowers in there. Um, and then after a break, they took away the tray with the real pansies, and they put a tray of polyester pansies in there. Didn't say that they were false. And um, the interesting thing in here is, that the real flowers significantly decreased this, this nerve activity, so this reduction in stress. Um, although there was no difference in the pulse rate, but you do see a very... It's a, it is a statistically significant result in here. Um, but... So you've got all this, all this sort of... Uh, th these, these differences in here. 
But actually, I haven't got the results of that. Sorry, the slide's gone wrong. But when you had the artificial flowers, no change. So, in fact, you couldn't fool them. Even though they didn't know they are artificial, they had no reaction. Which suggests that it's not just the colour. It's not just the shape. There's something else in another level of our, our subconscious or consciousness that links through to what we're looking at. And so that leads me on to the last one just to look at, which is the one about smell. So is there, is there a particular scent that we get from plants that that in itself provides us or leads directly to physical and mental well-being outcomes? So... As you know, the whole olfactory system, you know, we can, we're not as good as dogs, but we certainly have got a very strong sense of smell. And, and it's, we can apparently detect over 500 different smells. So we do have a, a, a good olfactory system. And with plants, what you're smelling more often than that is the aromatic volatile compounds from the plants. Now, it, it, there's a whole whole lecture on that but it, I think it is very interesting but it's these phyto, phytonicides are the things that you are often most of all the substances released by the plant and they're released obviously to attract pollinators to the plants so you know think about honeysuckle and the fact that it's it smells beautiful at night is because it's to attract the moths so it's you can but you can immediately pick this up right so this is where I think it does get very interesting. So this study here, one of the ones is that many of the um, conifers, and this one is the Japanese cypress, has a very distinct smell. I'm going to hand round some piece of paper with the oil on it so you can smell what it... It's not horrible, I warn you. If I could just hand this back. So this is a Japanese cypress oil, Hinoki cypress. And what they did, they took, there were uh, 12 men, all healthy men, um, Japanese men, and they put them, they stayed in hotel bedrooms for three nights, and they diffused this oil in the, in the room. Now, some people are pulling a face, thinking it's a strong smell, I can see the face. I quite like it, but I, I can appreciate it, so it's a definitely, my room now smells of this, because I've just put it on the paper. Now, what they did was they analysed their blood... Uh, and their urine, and they took blood pressure results for three days. And the end of the third day, so they were sleeping with this in the, in the air from a diffuser. The end of the third day, the first thing they found is that they had a really significant drop from the urine side, a really significant drop in the adrenaline hormone. So they were not nearly as stressed. The second thing is they had a reduction in their blood pressure, but the most interesting thing about this one, this is why the one I'm handing this around is, because they had a really big, statistically significant increase in natural killer cells. And these are the cells that attack viruses and cancers. And so a small thing, smelling that and having that diffusing in your bedroom, could actually have a very, very good impact on your physical and mental well-being. So... There are some very, very interesting things starting to come through, tantalizing evidence about this. So you can buy this stuff on the web. <laughs> I do have a diffuser in my bedroom now, I have to say. Um, but 
it's it, one of the things is it's this delimiline, which is one of the, uh, the organic compounds. And actually, you probably already know this, we like the smell of citrus, we like the smell of lavender. There's a reason why we like those smells. Because if you, if you look and you show that you get people to actually smell these, all of these different things, you'll find the same things. You know, you measure heart rate, heartbeat, subjective valuations, and with all of them, you find that people are more relaxed when they smell these things. So the lavender smelling, the stuff you spray on your pillow, there is a scientific reason behind that. It isn't just it's a nice smell. It does actually have a direct physiological mechanism in terms of calming you down. Um, so, yeah, heart rate is, is lower. So what ones are we looking at? Well, these are the ones that have really been studied. So you've got lavender, which we all know, uh, peppermint, rosemary is another one, um, citrus, the cypress, the one I've just shown you. Vanilla. I didn't realize vanilla actually has quite an important effect in here. Um, and so we're really starting to just understand the power of smell of plants. And actually, I, I asked you at the beginning, when you walk through an area and you smell the plants, you know, even cut lawn for me is something that you always sort of take in a breath and think, oh, that's a lovely smell. But actually, it probably is having a, 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 an important physiological impact on you and actually raising or reducing the stress around you. So what do we need to do then if we take this information together? This is an emerging field very much. Well, the first thing is clearly walking or sitting, even better, in biodiverse sort of wooded landscapes, city parks, even outside just the outside here, um, for 20 minutes or more will have an effect on your levels of stress and physiological and psychological well-being. Um, have living plants in your home. Plastic ones or polyester ones don't work, um, but preferably with green leaves. Green leaves and yellow flowers are the ones that we should all be looking to have in our offices and rooms. Smell the scent of species that we know contain those volatile organic compounds and actually start to really appreciate that that is something that does have a direct mechanism to reducing stress. But also move to a greener neighbourhood. Now, I'm not for suggesting we all... So I thought, um, if this is a really nice study. So it's not all terrible if you've grown up in a green neighbourhood, in a very uh, blank neighbourhood with not, not much green, because they looked at a lot, over 1,000 people and looked at people who had moved. And they looked at their medical records before and then after they moved. And what this study showed is of those 600 individuals who relocated, compared to their pre-move mental state, when they moved to a greener area, then they, had, they, they, they got this significantly better health outcome. So it's not that because you didn't grow up in a green area, that's it. Actually, even just moving. Now, I'm not suggesting we all go and sell our houses right now, but I did think I'd put Oxford back up for you so you can... <laughs> choose the location um, where we're going to be. Um, but a final thought, and this is more of a ser serious thought in here, is that there are still huge knowledge gaps in this area because up until the last 10 years or so, thinking about these aspects has always been in sort of the realms of voodoo science. It's sort of tree-hugging. But in fact, when we start to look at the evidence base, and I think it's very telling that some medical scientists that are driving this forward now, not the biological scientists, because I think the evidence base that's coming through is powerful. And I haven't shown you some of the economic studies where people have shown that actually 
getting people to walk for 20 minutes three times a week can have an incredibly um, powerful economic uh, statement in there about reduction in the amount of money that's being spent on drugs for depression. And there was a study that's published last year looking at the St. Milton Keynes and Bedford and Luton and showing that there's a, a significant saving could be made if you started prescribing green, a green prescription rather than a prescription for drugs. But the point I want to make is, of all of these studies, I haven't, I've sort of roughly totaled them up, around 100 vascular plant species so far have been studied. We currently know that there are over 400,000 vascular plant species. So little is known. We're just scratching at the surface of that. Um, the other thing is a vast majority of these studies are carried out on people who are in the United States, in Japan, in Western Europe, and we really don't properly understand the cultural differences and the cultural, um, wh- how much culture has a play on this. And that's a, a knowledge gap. Oh. But also the other thing is we mustn't all go rushing out. And this is where I think the government right now is sort of driving us in possibly in this long direction. We're supposed to be planting trees everywhere. And every time I look, there's another sort of million trees going to be planted around here and around everywhere else. Not all planting is going to get, bring us about these benefits. And I want to give you a study just as a, as a sort of a take-home message, really, on this, which is, if this was a lovely study that was done uh, quite recently. There's another one that came out a couple of weeks ago. So here's three street scenes with varying amounts of trees in them. So this has got none, this has got about 10%, this is about 40% of trees in here. So what they did, they, um, with 150 individuals here, they, first of all, um, they, they went through a process of inducing stress in these individuals, so they were really stressed. I'll tell you how they do it, because it sounds ominous. But actually what they do is they make them sit for five minutes, and they, affect, they make them do mental arithmetic without a pen or paper, and they throw these questions at them, and every time they make a mistake, they ring a bell to say, you made a mistake. Now, these people didn't even make a mistake, they still rang the bell. So you can imagine how stressful that is. You think about it, it makes you feel stressed. So once they've done that, what they did was they measured their... So they're in a stress state, and then they measured their salivary cortisol and then looked at how quickly they recovered from the stress. And after they've stressed them, different people looked at different street scenes. So some looked at 5%, some looked at 10% tree cover, some looked at 40% tree cover. Now... The interesting thing in here, oh, sorry, the interesting thing in here is you get a, effectively a U-shaped curve. So up to 35% tree cover, if someone looked at a, um, the, their stress re- recovery rates get better and better the more trees. But beyond 35%, the recovery rate actually gets worse. And why is that? Well, it's because people get stressed when they're if you've got too many trees on that landscape what they've shown is people start to get very nervous about someone effectively hiding attackers out there, etc., etc. Now, interestingly, in this study, the women showed no change at all across this amount. But another study, that I've just, I haven't got time to include it, so, but another study shows of women that once you get to about 45% tree cover, they won't walk in that environment in the dark. So that I think we have to be really careful that not all nature is beneficial. When you get too much of it, 
then you can actually start to have a negative impact. And that's another area that really needs to be taken into account when we're thinking about how we plan our cities of the future, especially if we're planting millions of trees to sequester carbon. So at that point, I will stop and say thank you very much for your attention. I hope you didn't mind the smell too much. <laughs> thank you.